This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. I'm Michael Rich. I'm Executive Vice President of the Rand Corporation. Uh, welcome to this Distinguished Speaker Series, the latest in our series of Distinguished Speakers uh, here at Rand. We're fortunate um, to have uh, Robert Jackson, and I think in your programs you have um, a fuller description of uh, Robert's background. He's the deputy uh, to Ken Feinberg. Uh, he is on leave, uh, and he's a professor of law at Columbia, uh, one of this nation's um, experts on corporate governance and particularly executive compensation, and um, is, uh, I think, um, uh, Ken is lucky to have him on board there in Washington. So with that, let me start. Welcome, Robert, to uh, RAND. Uh, thank you for your public service and taking time from Columbia. Um, you might want to set the stage for us and just remind us, what is the mandate and the scope uh, for the special master? Well, first of all, I want to say uh, thank you so much to Michael and everyone here at RAND for putting together this, uh, this fabulous opportunity to talk about what is a very unprecedented uh, and uh, extraordinary time in Washington, and to get your reactions and hear a little bit from you about what you think about the work that we're doing. The special master's office was created under a federal statute, the Recovery Act, that was passed just last February. And what it says is that uh, the Treasury shall promulgate some standards to govern compensation at these firms that received help from taxpayers. And last June, the secretary uh, released regulations that give Ken Feinberg, as a special master, the authority for two principal tasks. The first is to set compensation, the actual amounts that will be paid to the top 25 executives at these firms that receive the most assistance, the exceptional assistance recipients, Citigroup, AIG, Bank of America, and the auto companies, mm-hmm. which include Chrysler, GM, and their financing arms. So one task is to set compensation. The next task, and I hope we'll talk a little bit about this, is to do a review. The statute mandates a review of compensation paid at the height of the financial crisis to all TARP recipients, and that's some work we've just begun. We've spent the first year focusing Mm -hmm. on setting compensation at these exceptional assistance recipients. And how many of those uh, TARP recipients? You're talking about hundreds. Uh, For the entire review? Yes, there's over 400 400. TARP recipients that are subject to that broader mandate, that broader review. Okay, so there's Ken Feinberg, special master, Robert Jackson, uh, deputy special master. You're up against the biggest corporations in in the United States, so how many others are there? (laughs) Well, we've got – we're very lucky in this way. First of all, we have have Ken, and as you all know, and I know Rand knows well, Ken has taken on tasks that make this look – this stuff look easy. Uh, the 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund being one that comes mm-hmm. to mind, but, but other tasks where he's really trying to uh, make these difficult decisions that, that mm-hmm. really implicate the public interest. So we have Ken and his team. Right. And then at Treasury, we've got myself and three or four other attorneys okay. who work on the legal side of executive compensation. And then we've got data analysts, compensation consultants who came into Treasury mm-hmm. for the purpose of helping Ken with this work. So just the idea of a government agency regulating executive compensation is uh, unusual, probably uh, unprecedented. So what, what were the, um, the writers of the legislation and now the Treasury Department, what are you trying to accomplish with uh, this regulation and review? Well, I think there are a number of goals. The first goal, and the Secretary 
uh, has been very clear about this, is to make sure that the taxpayers get their money back. So the first goal is to set compensation structures that ensure that taxpayer money is repaid. And we're very pleased, I know Ken has said a number of times he's pleased, that of the seven exceptional firms where he was setting pay, two of them have since repaid their exceptional assistance. Citigroup and Bank of America have repaid. So I think one of the goals is to make sure taxpayers get their money back. Another goal is to reform and change these compensation practices that were put in place that contributed not only to the financial crisis, Mm -hmm. but to this chasm between Wall Street and Main Street, between the financial industry and what it expects in terms of compensation and taxpayers and what they think is reasonable in light of the whole economic climate we face for executive pay. Okay, I want to come back especially to that second um, broad, ambitious objective. But tell me a little bit about how, you, how you're doing this. How are you going about setting, reviewing and setting compensation? Well, the, the statute and the regulations set out a number of clear steps that the special master follows when he's going through this process. And so when we began last June and July, we started with the data. We went out to each of the firms, and the, the regulations authorized us to go to each company and ask them to propose what they wanted to pay these executives. Mm-hmm. And we asked for huge amounts of competitive data. What does the market justify? What, uh, what uh, underlying contracts have you got? And we've got, I sit in an office surrounded by shelves and shelves of these documents that explain why these companies made their decision. So we started with that data analysis and request. And then the regulations set forth six principles that the special master has to apply when setting compensation. And the principles focus on risk, Mm -hmm. taxpayer return, appropriate compensation structures. And this process requires going through those principles, identifying the things that uh, we want to change in these compensation Mm -hmm. structures, and using the data to come to a place where we actually can decide what each of these individuals is going to make. I know one of the things you'd like to do is link... Uh, compensation to the long-term performance of these corporations. Um, how are you doing that, and why is it important to do that? Well, one of the things we found when we looked at these companies and the way they paid, and I think one of the things that's really troubled many in the press mm-hmm. and the public, is this notion of guaranteed compensation. Mm-hmm. I think all of us can understand when an executive or, or anybody succeeds, nobody begrudges the successful compensation for that. But I think what really got frustrating was the notion that these executives were earning this money whether or not they performed. Mm -hmm. So a key, well, right, and that seems easy to us, but believe me, when you try and explain that on Wall Street, it's a difficult sell. (laughs) So one of the key things that we did was we said no more guarantees. Instead of salaries that are guaranteed at high levels, we're going to have low cash-based salaries, $500,000 or less. The rest of your salary paid every two weeks, just like regular salary is going to be something we invented called salary stock. And this is something that you get every two weeks, and instead of cash, you take that money and you invest it in the company right alongside taxpayers. And this is a special instrument we created that requires them to hold the stock for a very lengthy period of time, uh, three, four, five years. And that instrument is the way, is one way. We've changed this guaranteed notion to a link between pay and performance. I'm going to come back to that and some of the arguments against that in just a second. But uh, let me ask you to take a company, uh, one, of the, one of the seven perhaps, and maybe walk us through how it worked for that specific company. 
Well, so I'll, I'll, give, I'll give two examples just to show the difference in the okay. types of experience we had. The first was with Citigroup. When we went into Citigroup, we found a number of these kinds of guaranteed arrangements. And we went to the company, and we, we, we you know, Ken and his work, you know, Ken is a mediator, and his special skill is explaining the constraints that we face mm-hmm. to the companies and the executives. And we had these, these individuals who had these guaranteed amounts with no limited upside, but guaranteed minimum bonuses. And that creates, I think, very troubling incentives for risk-taking. Because if somebody tells you, no matter what happens, you'll receive a dollar, but you can receive as many as $100 if you succeed, well, this leads to risk-taking, we would expect. And so we managed to persuade the folks at Citigroup to replace those guaranteed amounts with stock. Take the stock. It's fully vested. You're not going to lose it, but you've got to hold it over time. So we had one situation like that at Citigroup, and compare that to AIG. At AIG, we had a very different experience. We worked with AIG for a long period of time to try and persuade them to do a similar kind of restructuring. And I'll tell you, you know, the executives, I think, have a hard time understanding the gap between their perceptions about their compensation and others. And uh, they, told us, uh, they told us no thanks. They told us <laughs> that they were unwilling to, uh, to restructure those contracts. Mm-hmm. Now, let me get into one of the counterarguments, of course, we read about, and that is that companies argue that restricting their ability to pay their top executives um, hurts their competitiveness and potentially de- deprives them of important expertise at the very time they're going to need it the most. Right. So how do you can respond to that? Well... You know, that, that argument that we're going to lose people for a long time really kept Ken and, mm-hmm. and the whole team up at night because the whole point here, remember, one of the key goals is to repay the taxpayer. Right. And so you have to retain talented people. And we focused on that for a long time. But I'll tell you, we've just taken a look at all the data on the people that we first ruled on their mm-hmm. compensation last October. 85% of the people we ruled on in October are still at the companies. And so this idea that people are going to leave for other compensation, that we're going to restrain the ability of these companies to retain talent, it's really not borne out in the data so far. That's, um, uh, I think that's a story that hasn't yet been told very widely yet in, in public. Um, the press has reported, though, that there's been some adverse reaction at a number of different companies, AIG and so on. What's been the reaction on Capitol Hill? Uh, to what uh, the special master's office has done so far? Well, one of the things that I think we've done well is to focus on how important it is to explain our decisions yeah. to the Congress and to the public. Um, we, Ken is very, and, and those who've worked with him will know, Ken is very, very focused on transparency, on consistency of process, and on going before the Congress and, and explaining why we've done what we've done. And so in our rulings, and one of the hard things about this job is that our rulings are not hypotheticals. We put on our website, here are the things we considered. Here's what the company asked for. Here's what we're going to pay, numbers 1 through 25. Bang, 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 bang. And I think that's helped us um, explain to the Congress why we're doing what we're doing. I can tell you that there have been, there have been times where, where we've gotten questions. Ken has gone to Capitol Hill and testified a number of times. Where we've gotten questions about why did you do this or why did you do that. But in general, mm-hmm. I think Congress understands the difficulty of Ken's task, and, uh, and I think they've, what they've expressed generally is appreciation for his efforts. Now, coming back to that second big objective that you talked about, um, basically reforming 
pay practices and uh, other kinds of um, uh, bad incentives. Um, can you tell what's happening from your changes at the upper levels of a corporation? What's happening beneath them? Is the, are these um, new principles rippling down through the corporations? Well, it, it's, it's hard to tell. And, and one of the things that Ken is focused on is, you know, he's got a very, very limited, clearly defined mandate. I mean, Ken, oh, sorry, excuse me. Ken's mandate is limited to a very specified group of individuals. He's, he's focused on numbers 1 to 25 for compensation payments and uh, compensation structures for what we call the next 75. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because of the exceptional nature of the government being involved in these decisions, we've been very focused on... Right. The individuals actually subject to our jurisdiction. But you've heard the criticism that some people might say, demote me to the 103rd position and I'll get a pay raise. <laughs> well, right. <clears throat> we, have thought, we have thought a lot about that. And, and you know, we've, we've seen a lot of encouraging signs at AIG and other companies okay. where we've seen, for example, AIG recently announced the implementation of a, of a wide-ranging performance-based compensation mm-hmm. program. But I have to tell you, one of, one of the things that Ken says often and, and – He's absolutely right. You know, the task of setting pay for the 100 is, is hard enough. Yeah. So we, we, we try to focus on getting that right. Well, what you, you're also hoping, I assume, is that some of these principles are also going to extend beyond the 400 or so firms that receive TARP assistance. Do you see any sign that that's going beyond these principles, uh, uh, going beyond the 400? Well, there's which... some early evidence of that. Okay. And... I'm, I'm hesitant to go further than that because it's very difficult to tell exactly what kind of long-term changes in reform we're likely to get. Right. Um, but one thing I can, we, we have seen and I think is, is, is critical is public debate about these issues, both inside the TARP experience and outside mm-hmm. the TARP experience. And something that's important to mention is that you know Ken's, Ken's mandate and the work that we're doing, it's important and it gets a fair bit of public attention, but it is a very small part of a broad menu of things the administration is focused on on executive compensation. The Federal Reserve yeah, has promulgated ask you for examples. guidance okay. uh-huh. on, on executive. The SEC will be changing the way their regulations work for all U.S. public companies. Mm-hmm. Regulatory reform legislation, which is being considered by the Senate as we speak, has very important governance changes that will affect the way U.S. companies compensate all executives. And so this is a very small part of a broad, broad uh, menu of changes that the administration uh, is, is, is focused on to fix these pay practices. Now, going back to the original impetus for these, um, uh, these efforts, the financial meltdown and the actions that led to them, can you speculate about the effect this might have on forestalling or preventing a recurrence of what we saw two years ago? Well, you know, I think uh, historians and economists are going to spend decades figuring out the, the various causes of the financial crisis. Um, my own view, and I, what the Secretary has said, and I, and I agree, is that this was one of many causes, mm-hmm. and that getting this right uh, will help us deal with these causes. But, but to me, much more important, and the Secretary has said this too, is the broad menu of regulatory reform changes right. that, we're, uh, that is going through the Congress right now. That, I think, will make a real change in future crises. So it sounds... Uh, just to simplify, it sounds like the, these are changes that are necessary but not in and of themselves sufficient, and some of these other uh, initiatives are going to go the rest of the way. I think that's uh, exactly right. I, I just add one, one uh, point about executive compensation in particular, which is something that happened during the financial crisis is that the public and shareholders and taxpayers, 
I think, lost a fundamental confidence, a fundamental trust between investors and the companies they invest in that their money was being used for appropriate purposes. Mm -hmm. And one of the important things about the work that Ken is doing is rebuilding that trust. And that, that trust is, is, is the lifeblood of a financial system. I think that's something that's uniquely important about executive pay. Well, let me just wrap up with one last question, and then we'll open it up to, because I'm sure there are other uh, questions here. And um, since this is RAND and we're an analytic organization, I'm, I, I want to ask what have you – and you, of course, come from – you have your own analytic background and you're a professor – is there a piece of analysis that you can think of that you wish you had in place? In other words, what would you have hoped would have been started? What study, what analysis would have been launched, say, back in 2006 uh, so it could have been completed by the time you and Ken began your work? Well, I think surely there's a lot of information we all would have liked to have at the time. But the kind of analysis that comes out of places like, like RAND, and the, the reason it's so important, is that and the kind of thing I would have liked to have seen before I started this work, is we didn't really have a good sense as to what was going on in executive compensation in these firms outside the top few, outside a few extreme examples. So we heard about CE, excessive CEO compensation. That's nothing new. But what we didn't know was that traders and others who were making very important capital allocation decisions <laughs> might have had bad incentives. And that kind of evidence before the crisis, I think, would have been very, very critical in helping to evaluate causes and to mitigate effects. Mm -hmm. So for public companies, you had amounts of compensation, but you, you didn't have any insight into the incentives that produced those payments. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah. But not only that, but those, for public companies, those disclosures were limited to just a few executive yeah, officers. A few executives, yeah. So we didn't have a sense, for example. I mean, take, take, for example, Andrew Hall, the $100 million man. We didn't know there was such a thing before the financial crisis because there's limited disclosure and data out there. And that's why it's so important, this kind of empirically-based research, because it gives us a sense before we get to crisis right. for what are the things that we should be concerned about. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.